Well, good morning, Dogs of Church. My name is David, one of the guys on staff. Uh, if you're here for the first time, welcome to Doxa. Super glad you're here. And if you're tuning in online, super glad to have you uh, with us from a distance. If you've got a Bible, pull it out. We're in 1 Corinthians 5. Okay, we've been continuing kind of our series through 1 Corinthians, and we are in 1 Corinthians 5. And this, I'll be honest, this is a very interesting passage. Um, if you don't know what 1 Corinthians 5 is about, you're about to find out. Uh, have you guys ever, did anyone, anyone into podcasts here? Anyone? Yeah. Uh, has anyone listened to the, like, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast? Okay, some big fans. So his whole kind of thing is he's just, like, very into history, but his, like, folk, like, the thing he's most excited about are, like, what are the craziest, just, like, you know, like, literally just like bloodiest, like what's the craziest thing that has happened in history, like the hardcore parts of history, and his podcast is on that. It's a great podcast. It doesn't like, you know, different wars, different crazy things that have happened in the past. This is like hardcore church history, okay? That's what this text is today. It's like this like very intense moment in like the history of the church where like there's this like really tremendous sin that's happening inside the church of Corinth, and it's the Apostle Paul's response to not just this person's sin, but actually his response to the way the church is dealing with this sin. Um, and it is hardcore, okay? So, 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to read this whole thing, and then we're going to talk about it. It says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, And of a kind that is not even tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Okay, so just to be clear, there's a man who is having sex with his mother-in-law. It says this, And you are arrogant. Ought you ought not rather to mourn, let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, I don't mean at all those sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to literally go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, but purge the evil person from among you. Okay. So this is like your standard everyday dude having sex with his mother-in-law, Paul excommunicating him from a distance text, right? This is just kind of standard fare. No, this is weird, guys. 
Weird, weird text. There's a situation in the church where there's this really gross sin. And it's of such a serious kind of disgusting nature that even the people in the world, like the whole rest of the world, are basically looking in at the church and say, what is this guy doing? That is nasty. And this whole text is about this guy and the church's response to his sin, but it's also about the way that the church is supposed to think about sin in general. And so here's what we're going to talk about today, the seriousness of sin, the spread of sin, and the sacrifice for sin. So I want to just start looking at the very beginning here, the seriousness of sin, okay? Now there's a guy who is having a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. Paul's answer to that, his conclusion is, get this person out of the church. Like get him out of community, don't let him come back, just get them out of the church. Now most of us, we would fully agree with that, right? With this specific sin, we're like, dude, that's messed up. Like that's really messed up. My guess is that there's no one in the room today who you're like, Dude, that's my struggle. Me and my mother-in-law. That's my guess. I don't want to, like, if that is your struggle, this is an awkward text for you, okay? But my guess is that's not, like, a normal thing, right? This is, like, something, even in this day and age, they would say, like, you don't do that. That is a line that, like, you do not cross, even in society. And so there's something in us, I think, that when Paul says, get this person out of the church, there's something in us that would go, that feels right feels appropriate. But don't get caught up in this guy's specific sin, okay, and miss the bigger thing that is going on here. What is Paul saying? Look at how he starts, right? Look at the very first line. It says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, before we get into the specific kind of sexual immorality, I just wanted to sit and notice what Paul is saying. He's saying, I am appalled of what I have heard about what's happening in Corinth. And what has he heard? There is sexual immorality in the church. Paul's concern isn't just that there is this specific horrific kind of sin. Now he is very concerned about that. But he is also concerned that there is sexual immorality in the church, period. And and sometimes maybe we, we use this word maybe because it's in the Bible, but what does this word sexual immorality mean? Well, it just literally means any sexual activity whatsoever outside of one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. Or the Bible would define it like that. So that sexual immorality is anything other than one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage doing anything sexually together. But his point isn't even about sexual immorality. His point is about sin generally, right? Because he goes and talks about this at the end. What does he say then? He says, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister that is, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard, or a swindler. It's just a list of sins, right? Someone who calls themselves a Christian and is engaging in this lifestyle willingly, consistently, he says, don't even eat with those people. So he's saying, I'm not talking about a specific kind of sin, I'm talking about sin. The issue isn't that this guy was sinning in the one way you aren't supposed to. The issue is that this person was living in sin. He was choosing sin willfully. It was the lifestyle he was choosing to live. He wasn't repentant. He wasn't trying to stop. He was choosing to do it. And in that lifestyle, his sin had grown into something that even the people who'd be like stumbling around State Street at 2 a.m., they would look at that and go, that's messed up. And Paul says that these people, they're actually to be kicked out of the church. 
They are not to retain the privileges of the family of God. And he says that in the end, for those who call themselves Christians but are choosing to live in their sin, he says, don't even eat with these people. Don't let them be part of your community at all. Now we need to stop for a second, because he's going to qualify this. So he qualifies it in a couple different ways, right? The first way he qualifies it, he says, hey, I'm, I'm not talking about non-Christians, right? Towards the end. He's like, hey, I know there's been some misunderstanding when I'm, I'm talking about not to associate with sexual, sexual immoral people or those who are greedy. I'm not talking about non-Christians, right? So if you're in the room and you are non-Christian, you are welcome here. <laughs> we can eat with you. It is great. We're super glad you're here. He's not talking about non-Christians, no, we hang out with them, we love them, we pull them into our lives. He clarifies that. But also he's not talking about people who are actively fighting their sin and trying to kill it. Right, because you read that list and you're like, oh my gosh, sexual immorality, greed, idolatry. You're like, dude, I have temptation for all these things. Like I, I, I'm standing up on stage, I'm reading that word greed and I'm like, I struggle with greed. It's a sin that like I am tempted towards is to be greedy, to want more than I have or what I need. So he's not talking about people who are like fighting their sin, calling it what it is, trying to kill it, and have like kind of a trajectory away from it towards purity of life. What he's talking about is for those who are in the church, who call themselves a follower of Jesus, call themselves brother or sister, and they are living a sexually immoral life. They are greedy. They are idolaters. They are slanderers. They're drunkards. Meaning like this is not something they are fighting. This is just something they're choosing to do. And he says, don't even eat with these people. Why is Paul telling the church to take sin this seriously? Because we can be honest and we stop and consider it. This is a really serious way to live. Why? Well, I think what Paul's trying to explain to us is because if we don't take sin seriously in the church and in our lives, we are actually putting people in an incredibly dangerous situation. And it's not just people inside the church, but it's actually people outside the church. If the church doesn't take sin seriously in here, we are putting people outside the church in an incredibly dangerous position. Because if we don't take our sin seriously, what we are communicating to everyone in the world is that they don't need to take their sin seriously either. So like if the non-Christians, right, if the non-Christians around us, they see that the people in the church basically get drunk like they do, they have sex outside of marriage like they do, we view pornography like they do, we idolize money and we idolize material possessions like they do, they will assume that these things are not that big of a deal. And yet the Bible tells us in Colossians 3 that it's actually because of these very things that the wrath of God is coming on all mankind. And so there's this thing that happens in the church where there will be certain sins that we'll say, well, we know this is totally off limits. But there's these other sins that are like okay for us to dabble in as long as we don't get like too out of bounds with it, right? And so I, I know a lot of people that think like this. And I've even thought like this from time to time with different areas of sin. It's like, well, if we go out and we drink a little too much with our friends from time to time, it's easier for us to think, well, hey, you know what? It's a small sin, not that big of a deal. I'm saved by grace anyways. But if we live that way, we're communicating to the world that sin isn't really that big of a deal, that God doesn't actually care that much about it. 
And if we communicate to the world that their sin isn't that big of a deal, we are also communicating to them that salvation isn't that big of a deal either. Because if God doesn't hate our sin, and the wrath of God is not coming on people for these things, then why do we really need a Savior? We need a Savior because God does hate sin. And the wrath of God is coming on humanity for these very things. And so if you don't take sin seriously, we are putting people outside of the church and in an incredibly dangerous position, but we're also putting people inside the church in a really dangerous position. Look what he says in the last part of verse 2. He says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then he says, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. Right? Paul is writing a letter to this church. Though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and, and, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So we're going to talk about what this all means, but he says, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Right? Sometimes Christians have this idea that Christians are not supposed to judge others. And Paul would say, yes, that is partly right. We are not supposed to pass judgment on those outside of the church. But we are absolutely supposed to pass judgment on those inside the church. This is exactly what he says. Verse 11 through 13. What business of it is mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. But you, church, expel the evil person from among you. So if you are a Christian, you actually are supposed to judge between right and wrong as clearly defined in the Bible. You're supposed to do that. You're actually supposed to call out sin and expose sin in your own life and actually in the lives of the people around you. This is supposed to happen within the church. Why? Because if sin has its way, even in the church, if sin has its way, it will drag you and everyone around you to hell. I understand how strong of a statement that is. And even as I was writing it, I tried to rewrite it in a bunch of different ways so it didn't feel that strong, but that is exactly what Paul is saying. Why are they supposed to kick this person out of fellowship? Well, ultimately he says why. It's so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, this person's sin, as it currently sits, his lifestyle is actually dragging him to hell. This is the trajectory his life is on right now, even though he's in the church. And so the goal of pushing this person out of the church is not so that they would be separated from God, but actually it's so that somehow in doing this, they might see the seriousness of their condition and they would turn around. That being thrown out of the family of God, they would finally come to their senses. What it means to hand someone over to Satan is to like disconnect them from the body of Christ and to send them back out into the world that Satan rules. Praying that somehow they would see the seriousness of their sin, that they would repent and come back to Jesus, that their corrupted flesh would be destroyed. Now I know that this idea is incredibly hard for some of us, right? And once again, we're not talking about just this person who's doing this crazy gross sin. He's like people, greedy, idolaters, slanderers, right? I understand that this idea of saying that those people who will not repent of their sin, 
refuse to take their sins seriously, to push them out of the church. This idea seems incredibly hard for some of us, especially in a place like Madison. It seems unloving. It seems judgmental. It seems elitist and self-righteous. But I am telling you that if we refuse to take this really hard road with some people and you refuse to kind of cut them off from your community, then you will actually end up walking with them arm in arm into the gates of hell itself. And even though you may have had a voice of correction in their life, talking to them about their sin, every once in a while bringing it up, but because you walked with them the entire way there, they may still believe that these really are the gates of heaven when they're not. And so Paul says that when we don't take sin seriously, he says it isn't loving, actually. And he says it isn't tolerant. He says it isn't actually even humble. He says it's arrogant. Isn't that weird? I remember I was reading that and he was saying it's actually arrogant what they're doing. And so there's a question, are, are we grieved by the sin that we see in our lives? Are we grieved when we see sin in the lives of other people in this church? Do we mourn when we see sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or slander or gossip affect the body of Christ? Or are we arrogant? Arrogant because we think, we don't think that sin really matters all that much. Something about the cross of Jesus, something has confused us where we go, well, because of Jesus, we don't need to care that much about sin anymore. Or are we arrogant because we don't think that God really means what he says about sin, the seriousness of it? Or we're arrogant because we don't really think that we ourselves are in danger of it? We have this idea that we know more about the world and sin than God does. And so we think that actually the way that we can make our community better and actually our world better is by taking the things that God takes really seriously and taking them lightly. And we call this growth and we call it progress. And we think that what we're doing is we're living in the freedom of the grace and kindness and love of God. And we say things like, surely God wouldn't care about these things because we don't care about these things. And he says this is not loving. It's not tolerant humility. It's actually arrogance. And he says it's incredibly dangerous. Look what he says in in verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Now, I don't think what was happening in this church is that they were like, dude, this is amazing. We have this dude who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. How cool are we? I don't think that's what's happening. I think the thing they're doing is they're just going, ah, that's weird, that's gross. But we're not gonna do anything about it. And Paul says, what you're doing in that moment is you are actually boasting You're allowing sin. There's this arrogance that's happening. And he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And he wants to talk about not just the seriousness of sin, but the spread of sin. Okay, he's saying this. He's saying you should take sin very seriously because sin is like leaven. 
Right now, what is leaven? Well, like this is, he's using this kind of metaphor from the Passover, right? There's like unleavened bread and there's leavened bread. And it's this whole thing. And we don't actually have time to get into all of it. But just in today's world, to take a hard cut from the seriousness of this sermon, does anyone make bread? Okay. Make, does anyone make sourdough? Yeah. Okay. So I don't know a ton about making bread, but I know a little bit about sourdough. And basically sourdough, you, it needs leaven, right? Leaven is this like fermentation agent. It's this rising agent. And when you're making bread, all you need to do is you need to take a little pinch of the old dough. You always keep a little bit of it, right? Tiny bit. And what you do is you end up taking this and you work it into this new dough and the leaven that's in it will start to work its way into all of it, right? That's what leaven does. And so he's saying, Paul is saying this, this is how sin works. Take a little bit of leaven, tiny bit, only take a tiny, tiny bit. And if that gets mixed into the dough, all of it will become leavened. He is saying sin spreads. It doesn't actually just stay in one person, but it grows. Meaning your sin affects everyone. This is why sin is not just an individual team sport. This is why confession isn't actually just between you and God, but because we are a body of Christ. My sin affects all of you. And your sin affects me. And he's saying that if the church is the body of Christ, then sin that isn't dealt with is like gangrene. You ever Googled gangrene? It's not great, okay? I did it this week. Not an uplifting Google search, okay? But gangrene, right? It's like caustic wound. that You have it just in your finger. But if this finger is infected, it will move to your hand, It will move to your arm, it will move through your shoulder, and it will move through your entire body, and it will kill you. And so if you have a finger that has gangrene, and it refuses to be healed, it will not heal, you cut it off. So the question is, do you view sin in this way? The sin is like leaven, it, it grows. And, and sin is this way, right? Because sin is not content in having one person in the church. It wants all of us. And sin is not content with just having one area of your life. It wants all of you. Right, and so there's things that we do even in our own lives with this, right? We're like, well, okay, I'm gonna preserve like 95% of myself, your purity for the Lord, but there's this one area of sin that I'm going to hide and just allow to kind of fester in my life. And he's saying, don't, that's foolish. No, sin will be never content having part of you. It will always go for all of you. So the question is this, do you sin and keep it to yourself? that you have sin and you have secret sins in your life that no one else in the church knows about? Paul's saying that doing that would be like your finger having an infection and not telling the rest of your body about it. If we don't confess our sins, then it will poison the people around us. And if we don't confess our sins, then it will continue to grow deeper and the infection will get worse and worse. And if you catch an infection quick enough, right, there's gospel medicine. There's spiritual ointment, right? The church is actually a safe place for sinful people to be in because we have a cure, a remedy. We have Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed on the cross. And so we can actually come to him as sinful people, 
opening up our sin to the people around us and to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you help me? Would you forgive me? And we have spiritual medicine for that sin. But if you let your sin completely eat you up and destroy you before anyone else even knows about it, then not only will you make the rest of the body sick, but you will have so hardened your heart that you may not want to repent in the end. And you may not even want to come back to Jesus in the end. And so he says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This is how sin works. So take it seriously. But then he wants to talk about the sacrifice for sin. So look what he says in verse 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Meaning like you really are this new thing. Like Jesus is doing this thing in you. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's talking about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for sin. And what he's talking about is there's like two, it's like two sides to the coin, right? Because there's one side where he's saying, hey, Christ, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And this is the side of the coin that's like grace and promise, And he's saying, how amazing is this, right? You really are unleavened. Like you really are new, been made new, forgiven. And he's saying, we should celebrate that. Celebrate this festival. You really have been sanctified. You really are a new lump, which is a great way to encourage people, right? You're a new lump. It's it's just fantastic. He's saying this, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed on our behalf This is the side of grace and promise. But why was he sacrificed? Why was he sacrificed? Well, he was sacrificed because our sin was so heinous, it was so rebellious and so evil that God's son, being born into our world to be crucified, was the only fitting substitute for what we deserved. For God's son to be hung up on the cross as a slaughtered lamb because of how wicked and evil our sin is, in order to pay the penalty for our sin, in order to forgive us our sin, and then for us as Christians to continue to live in our sin. This is when you see the other side of the coin. And it's actually a sign of a sign of warning, not peace. And we need to be very careful and we need to be very clear about this. And so if you're in the room, I want you to just pay attention. There is nowhere in the Bible, nowhere, that says if you have put your faith in Jesus and yet choose to continue living in sin, don't worry because Jesus will save you. Listen, if you are willingly choosing to live in your sin, and you are choosing not to repent of your sin, meaning call it evil and turn away from it, you're choosing not to be obedient to Jesus' call on your life to pursue holiness and purity and righteousness, then you should not be comforted by the cross. You should be terrified by it. If you're not confessing your sins as sin, you're not repenting and turning away from your sins, striving to obey Jesus, hear me say this. The Bible gives you zero assurance of salvation. 
None. No matter what prayer you prayed or what emotional moment you had in the past, if you choose to live a life of sin, God does not just give you assurance of salvation, he gives you assurance of judgment. This is what Hebrews 10 says. He says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's he talking about? The church, right? Small groups gathering together, Christians who are encouraging one another, who are saying, man, I'm struggling with this. Would you help me? Would you pray for me? Like people gathering together as the church, meeting together in person, life on life, trying to figure out how do we become more like Jesus and fight our sin. He's saying, don't stop doing that. Why? For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses, they die without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is saying Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And that means for those of us in the room who are fighting our sin, who are coming to Jesus and we're calling our sin what it is, and we have received grace and forgiveness and we are trying as poorly as we are, but we are trying to live as God's true children. He is saying we should celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And if we are going to be people who do this, we need one another far more than we think. We need the church. We need each other far more than we think. Because how did such a horrific and magnificent sin happen in the church of Corinth? This guy and his mother-in-law. Well, it doesn't tell us, but we can like pretty well guess how this came about, right? When Paul left and the first few sins started to creep into this person's life, no one said anything. Right, and then as the sins grew and, and, and it started to grow and started to get kind of awkward, they knew that they also had sin in their own life. And it was just easier not to call out the sin in this person's life because they didn't want the sin called out in their own life either. And as they became more and more apathetic to sin, eventually sin grew and it became so normal and so commonplace that they completely forgot what the church of God was supposed to even look like. And so they got proud and they got arrogant in their sin. Listen, it doesn't start big, it starts small. And if we don't hold one another to holiness in small areas, then we're not going to hold each other accountable in big areas. And so not calling each other out and not confronting the sin in each other's lives, it isn't humility, it isn't love, it isn't tolerance. Listen, he says this is arrogance. And pulling away from people who would point out sin in your life, it isn't keeping peace. It isn't that. He says it's foolishness. And it's actually recklessly dangerous. 
And some of you in the room, I, I understand that there's this tension happening where you can't figure out how this isn't legalism. You can't figure out how this isn't judgmentalism. To call out sin in someone else's life around you, to take sin so seriously, aren't we under grace and not under the law? What is all this obedience talk? Legalism is when you determine your identity based on how well you obey Jesus. That's what legalism is. What the gospel does is it gives you an identity based on how well Jesus obeyed God. And in the same breath, it now calls you to live like him, be like him. The gospel gives you an identity that's based on the shed blood of Jesus. And it is the shed blood of Jesus that actually now demands our obedience and our holiness. And he's saying because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slaughtered, he didn't die so you could stay in your sin. He actually died so that you could become like him. Listen, this is a church that is filled with people who are struggling with sin. There's no one in here who reads that list and goes, oh, I don't know, I have no struggle with any of these things. No, every single person in this room, we, we feel temptation, we feel this pull of sin on our lives because it wants to have us and devour us. And so what I want to say is this, I want to say, this is a really, really safe place to be someone who struggles with sin. It's not a safe place to stay in sin. So I want to give some real specific application. Okay, I normally don't do this, but I have literally five points of application and we're going we're gonna to blitz through them. But this, here's, here's what I think we need to do as God's people in response to this text. First thing, we need to be people who live in the light. Live in the light. If you hide your sin, then people can't call you out for your sin. And sin thrives in darkness. It grows in the darkness. And so put your sin in the light because that's the only way the people around you can help you walk away from it. Turn the lights on in your life. I'm serious. Be radically open and honest with who you are, what you're dealing with, how you are struggling and failing. Are you trying to fight your sin on your own? Are you trying to fight your sin on your own? Do you know who the wolves go after? They do not go after the group of sheep who are following the shepherd. They go after the one sheep who's out on its own. And if Satan can get you to hide your sin and fight him alone, he has already won. He has you right where he wants you. So we live in the light. Some of you, you know this is true. You are living a double life. You, you have a version of you that you present to the church and your Christian friends, and there's a whole other side of you that you live. You are walking in darkness. Hear me say this in love to you. Come back to the light. You are not safe where you are. Second thing, do not be arrogant, but be grieved by the sin in and around you. Don't respond to sin with tolerance and apathy, but instead mourn. Grieve over sin because of what it is doing in your brother or sister, what it is doing to the body of Christ, and what it is doing in you. But don't respond to sin with anger and self-righteousness either. Mourn. There's actually two ways to be arrogant, right? One is to be apathetic and assume that sin doesn't really matter that much. 
But the other way to be arrogant is to actually see yourself as superior to the brother or sister who's caught in sin. And Jesus would say this, he'd say, take the log out of your eye before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Like if you look at someone else and you think, man, this person has some sin in their life, this is the only person who's in need of correction in their life. You are like a person, Jesus says, who is walking around with like a beam sticking out of your eye, trying to do this like finessing thing, getting the speck out of your brother's eye. No, get the beam out of your eye. Confess your sin, recognize that you also struggle with these things, but then go to your brother or sister and help get the speck out of their eye. Three, receive correction as the grace of God in your life. One of the things that will actually determine how you end up on this path of Christianity is actually how well you receive correction from people around you. Do you know how hard it is for someone to come to you and point out sin in your life? That's really hard to do. It is super awkward and uncomfortable. And the only reason someone would go through that uncomfortable conversation is because they actually love and care about you. If you have someone from across the aisle who comes to you and brings up sin that they see in your life, it isn't because they hate you. It's not because they're being judgmental towards you. It's probably because they actually care about your soul. And so thank God if someone comes to you and talks to you even if they aren't in your immediate circle and they call you away from sin and back to Christ, listen, don't reject that person. They've actually just demonstrated that they really are your brother or sister. Four, non-Christians. This is what I want to say. If you're a non-Christian in the room, look at the fruit of our lives. If the people in this church aren't really any different than you, then go to a church where they are. Because of the people you meet here are full of gossip and sexual immorality and drunkenness, then you need to go find a group of Christians that aren't like that. Because if you meet people here who aren't living a life that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, you need to go find a church where they do. Not because they're judgmental, not because they're self-righteous, but you actually should feel a little bit uncomfortable when you walk into a room like this. You should feel a little bit uncomfortable when you walk into a connection group. Not because anyone thinks they're better than you, but because people have actually had their lives changed by Jesus. Because where the gospel is, where Jesus really is, you will find changed people. And the last thing is this. Run back to the cross of Jesus. Run back to the cross of Jesus. No matter where you are, run back to the cross of Jesus. We will never be in a place where we are too far to come back to Christ. Like this is what's amazing about the gospel is like even if you're in this room and you're like, oh my gosh, the thing this person's doing, I'm literally doing that. You're not too far. Jesus has outran you and stands there with grace and forgiveness. His blood has been shed for you. And so no matter where you are, you can always turn back to Jesus. You're never too far to come back to him. But also, you are never so close to Jesus that you don't need a little bit of correction. Everyone who is in this room is someone who has some sin in their life. And if we are going to be the church of God, what it means is that we don't live as a firing squad where we're like, you know, with a lens, dissecting every little thing that everyone does. That is not what we're talking about. But we are saying we want to be the kind of community that calls sin what it is and calls it evil like it is, 
And we want to be the kind of community that just freely opens up our lives to the people around us and says, hey, I've chosen to follow Jesus. I know there's destructive stuff in me that wants to take me down. Would you walk with me and help me become more like the Jesus I'm trying to follow? That's what we're talking about. And so one of the things that we do as a church to become people like this is communion. And communion is a really interesting thing to do with regularity because there's actually this tension in communion that this could become like a very normal thing for us, right? Like we come in every other week and we take this together and and we have this recognition that like we know we're saved by the blood of Jesus and we know that this represents the shed blood of Christ. We know that this this bread represents his body that's been crushed for us. We, We recognize this and we know this. But there's actually a danger in becoming really familiar with communion because we could start to become the kind of people who walk in week after week with sin in our lives that we are living in and we start to say, that's okay that that stays there. I'm not gonna deal with that. I'm just gonna let it grow and fester and I'm going to take and eat of the body of Christ assuming that somehow... (laughs) This is going to save me even though I'm not choosing to repent of my sin. Jesus' blood has been shed on your behalf. But we actually as followers of Christ have to turn away from our sin, repent of our sin, and come to Jesus. And so what I want to tell us this morning is I want to just remind us to not take the sacrifice of Jesus lightly. Because if we do that, we are in a really dangerous place. And so I want to just give us a moment to actually, before we take this together, I want you to, to just come to Jesus and to just take a moment and let him actually like unfold what's true of your life. Is there any hidden sin? Is there any area of your life that you are not confessing and you are just choosing to live in this? I want to give you a moment to just process that with Jesus before we take communion. So 
I want to put a slight fence around this today. If you are someone who is a follower of Jesus and you see the sin in your life and you see that it is evil and you see that it is wrong and you go, I need redemption, I need forgiveness, I want to re- flee from my sin and flee to Jesus Christ, we're going to take communion together. But if you are someone who's in the room and you are living in sin and you have no intention of running away from that sin, I'm going to invite you not to take this today. Because by taking this, what you are doing is you are coming to Jesus for forgiveness. You are, you are repenting of your sin. And if you actually eat of this and you take of this with the wrong heart and posture, you are actually just going to bring more judgment on yourself. So don't do that. Okay, but if you are a Christian and you are a follower of Jesus and you are saying, Jesus Christ, I want to follow you. I need your blood. I need your righteousness. We're going to take this together. So we take the bread and we remember that the sin that we have in our lives, these temptations, that these are not things we can fight and we can win, but these are things that Jesus Christ has done in and of himself. We remember that it was his body who was broken for us. Let's take and eat in remembrance of him. And now we take the cup and we remember that our sin was paid for by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we all come into this room as people who are sinners in need of grace. And by the most amazing and stunning thing, God, you have saved us. You have paid for our sins at the cost of your body and your blood. Those things have been poured out on the cross for us. And so Jesus, we stand as new people. We are these people you talk about, this this new lump, this new person, this new creation because of what you have done. And so Jesus, we recognize before you that there is still sin in our lives and sin wants to have us. But you have paid for us. We are yours now. And so, Jesus, we stand as newly made people, redeemed. Would you help us to live as those people, to take the things you say are serious, to take them serious? And God, would we be a group of Christians who live in purity and righteousness and holiness because that is what your blood has been shed to pay for. We really are yours, Jesus. Would you help us worship you this morning? and help us live our lives as though that were actually true. In your name, amen.